you can all see from your notes, I hope, we're going to talk about fasting this week. And I assure you, I did not plan to talk about fasting the week uh, and following Thanksgiving. It just worked out that way. So don't take this as a uh, you wicked feasters of Thanksgiving sermon or anything like that. Um, give us a little bit of background to get the flow of the passage back into our minds today here. Um, remember all the way back in chapter 5, uh, Jesus began to talk about the importance of a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And then he gave six examples of teaching. We call them six antitheses, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you, examples of how he reacted to the hypocritical teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, which in one way or another distorted the law. And Jesus brought a correction to that, what the true meaning of the Old Testament law was and what true righteousness therefore looked like as opposed to the hypocritical teaching of so many of the scribes and the Pharisees of his day. And then when we got into chapter 6, we saw him further expanding on that uh, through not only some of the teachings that they gave, but some of the practices, the religious practices in which they showed hypocrisy. Uh, for example, he warned against the, the kind of hypocrisy and therefore uh, the bad righteousness, the pretend righteousness, the hypocritical attempt at appearing righteous, right? Uh, we're to have genuine righteousness. We're to live in a genuinely righteous way. And therefore, in things like giving, right, we're supposed to do it with sincerity. And so he gave the first example in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and how they were hypocritical in their giving, and we shouldn't be. And then he warned us against hypocrisy in praying in verses 5 through 8, and then, of course, in verses 9 through 15, uh, he was warning against or giving an example of what a sincere, proper kind of praying looks like, one that acknowledges God, uh, right, and his glory as our ultimate goal, and not our own glory. Because remember, they were giving to be seen by men for their own glory. They were praying to be seen by men for their own glory. And so Jesus gives an example of prayer, of praying for God's glory. Yes, for our good, but our good is also for his glory. And we always keep that as our primary emphasis. And now we'll see this week shifting from having talked about how they practiced giving or almsgiving in a hypocritical way, and they prayed in a hypocritical way. The third main kind of religious practice that they had was fasting, and they did that in a hypocritical way, surprise, surprise, as well. And so that's his third example of the religious practices and the hypocrisy that he saw around him so frequently. And in and, and challenges Challenging all these things, of course, he's reminding us what true righteous living should look like as opposed to this hypocrisy that he was seeing all around, around him. And he's doing that, of course, with fasting as well. So that kind of brings us up to speed on the whole thought process that's going on since about chapter 5, verse 17, that Jesus has been building this case. He's been giving examples to prove his point and to demonstrate what real righteousness looks like as opposed to what was being feigned so commonly among him or amongst the people there and in his presence. 
Now, we've already looked, as I've already indicated, at verses 14 and 15, because we looked at those verses when we looked at verse 12, and we talked about forgiveness. I jumped ahead because Jesus in verses 14 and 15 seemed to be expanding on this idea of forgiveness that he had just spoken of in the prayer. So we've already handled those, and we're ready for verse 16, which says this, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Let's take a moment to pray, and then we'll dive into the text for today. Holy Father, I do thank you for your word. I thank you that you inspired our departed brother, the prophet and apostle Matthew, to write this account of our Lord's teaching for our benefit, that we have the words of Jesus preserved for us to ponder, to take to heart, to help us to serve you and love you better with all of our heart, mind, and soul and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourself more fully, to be Christ-like. And I pray that uh, you would work a deeper Christ-likeness in us today as a result of our Lord's teaching. Fill us with your spirit and with understanding to that end, I pray, for your glory and for our good and in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thinking about today's passage, John Stott has observed concerning this text that, quote, here is a passage of scripture which is commonly ignored. I suspect that some of us live our Christian lives as if these verses had been torn out of our Bibles. Most Christians lay stress on daily prayer and sacrificial giving, he writes, but few lay stress on fasting. I have to admit, I haven't had that many sermons on fasting over the years. I've had quite a few more on praying and maybe two or three on giving, right? Uh, but uh, these things, of course, come up as we study various passages of the Bible, and I teach on them then. But I, as I thought about what he said there, I thought, you know, I probably should teach just on fasting occasionally more than I do, that I'm probably guilty of this myself, of at least not emphasizing it enough. So that's one point of application for me as a pastor that I'm already taking from my study of this passage. A 2004 issue of the Barna Update entitled, Faith Has a Limited Effect on Most People's Behavior, uh, they reported the findings then that I cannot imagine have gotten any better in the last 19 years. The study also indicated the right that even though the Bible and churches encourage fasting for religious reasons, the people most likely to engage in religious fasts are adherents of non-Christian faiths. In fact, non-Christian people of faith are twice as likely as Christians to engage in fasting. Now, if my own experience is any indication, both Stott and the Barna Group have probably gotten it just about right. 
even though they wrote these things some years back, I don't see much reason to think things have changed these days. I hope that we're all an exception to that rule, but I suspect that we need a strong reminder on the matter ourselves. I know I, know I did. I do. And in this regard, in this passage, we're going to see three things. The first thing that I think gets missed all too often when people read this passage is that Jesus assumes that we will fast. Secondly, Jesus warns us against hypocritical fasting. And then thirdly, Jesus admonishes us to heartfelt fasting. The first main point here is that Jesus assumes that we will fast. He doesn't have to command it. He just assumes we will do it, which is a virtual command. The Lord assumes that you will do something if you're a godly person. That amounts to a command to do it, does it not? Um, But we see in verse 16, in the first part of verse 16, moreover, he says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. Now, notice that Jesus says to his disciples, when you fast. That's an assumption that they will. He's presupposing they will fast. And he says, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites. I want you to fast, but not like them, right? He clearly, as I said, presupposes that they'll fast, even if not until a later time, as he discussed with the disciples of John the Baptist on another occasion, because they weren't fasting at this time. He's giving them teaching, assuming that they will fast, But as we'll see, not yet. If you look ahead in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 15, you see this. Matthew 9, 14 to 15. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? So John the Baptist had had taught his disciples to fast often, just as the Pharisees had done. That's something the Pharisees should have been doing, fasting often. It's just not hypocritically. They shouldn't have been doing it hypocritically, right, as they were so often doing it. And so he's not set aside fasting. He's taught his disciples to continue fasting, but clearly in the correct way. And, but his disciples are taken aback that Jesus' disciples aren't fasting. Not at that point, at least. And Jesus said to them, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Again, assuming, presupposing that they will fast as well. Now, Jesus did not expect that his disciples would fast while he was still with them. But he clearly did expect that they would fast after he was taken away from them, he says, which must refer to the days following his death, resurrection, and ascension. Not surprisingly, surprisingly, then, the Bible clearly shows that Jesus' followers did indeed fast after his resurrection and ascension. He assumed they would, and they did. Consider, for example, what Luke tells us about the Christian teacher's And prophets in uh, Antioch in Acts 13, 1 through 3. We're told there that in the church that was in Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers Barnabas, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul, who we later know as Paul. We're told that as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, and the assumption here is that they were praying and fasting, they got this word from the Lord and they prayed and fasted some more. Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away, we're told. Now here we see a couple of purposes for our fasting that we can take note of. First, fasting helps us to seek the Lord's guidance and can even be done as a group. These leaders in the church in Antioch were fasting and praying together. Second, fasting can accompany praying for and setting apart certain people for ministry. This no doubt involves praying for God's empowerment and protection for them as they embark on such an important ministry. You can imagine that's what was going on when they got this word from the Holy Spirit that Barnabas and Saul were to be set apart for a certain ministry. They then prayed and fasted, probably in support of that ministry, right, and protection and for the advancement of the gospel, an open door for the gospel and so forth. And then they laid hands on them, sort of appointing them officially to that task. We find this uh, later emphasis, or this latter emphasis that I've mentioned in the example of Paul and Barnabas when they appointed elders in the churches. In Acts 14.23, we're told that when they, referring to Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Again, we see that fasting was a part of committing men to service for the Lord. They prayed and they fasted. And note that they prayed and fasted in every church. They were appointing these elders in every church and praying and fasting in every church when they set these men apart. In other words, this was commonly done when setting men apart for ministry in the early church. It is the example that the apostles have left us. In fact, we can see in Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians an expectation that believers in general would fast as a part of their Christian life. Um, and this is an interesting example because it shows that fasting can include more than fasting from just food. In 1 Corinthians 7, verses 3 through 5, the apostle Paul writes this, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer. And come together again, so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Notice that fasting can involve abstaining from more than just food here. In this case, Paul assumes that married couples might wish to abstain from marital relations during a fast. He only stresses in such cases that it must be with the consent of both the husband and the wife. 
Now, why would husband and wife do that? Well, because as much as I love my wife, Lord, while I'm praying and fasting, my wife and I want to say you're first in our lives. My wife is saying, my, my husband is not first in my life, Lord, you are. And I'm saying, Lord, my wife, though I'm one flesh with her, and she's tops in my world of people. There's not even a close second, right? But you, you, Lord, are more important to me than her. So that's a part of what fasting is about. Setting apart time to acknowledge that God is the most important person, most important being in your life. He's more important than food. He's more important even than your spouse. As J.A. Packer has observed on this point of fasting being a little more than, or can be more than just from food, he writes this, we tend to think of fasting as going without food, but we can fast from anything. If we love music and decide to miss a concert in order to spend time with God, that's fasting. It is helpful to think of the parallel of human friendship. When friends need to be together, they will cancel all other activities in order to make that possible. There's nothing magical about fasting. It's just one way of telling God that your priority at the moment is to be alone with him, sorting out whatever is necessary, and you have canceled that meal, party, concert, or whatever else you had planned in order to do that and fulfill that priority. I think he's got the idea right here. You can fast from more than just food, although that's typically what we're going to fast from when we're fasting. Because there's really nothing more important on a daily basis to us, right, than food. (laughs) Uh, Another example of fasting uh, comes from Paul's description of his sufferings as an apostle. For example, in 2 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5, he writes this, But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God, in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. Paul clearly saw fasting, and fasting often because he uses the plural, and there's a context of multiple tribulations, multiple times he's been beaten, so he fasted often. It is one sign of the genuineness of his apostolic ministry. All these things show that he's a true apostle, and one of those things was his frequent fasting. Later on in 2 Corinthians, in chapter 11, verses 27 and 28, he talks about his ministry as an apostle, and he spoke of how he served in weariness and in toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And now notice in that list that fasting is mentioned separately from other times of hunger and thirst. Paul may have had to suffer hunger and thirst at times through no choice of his own. He doesn't consider that fasting. Fasting is different because it's an active choice. So there are times, he said, in my apostolic ministry, I suffered hunger and thirst. Think about being out on the ocean, right, for three days and nights when your ship was right. You're not drinking or eating, right? 
but you're not fasting. You didn't choose to do that. But fasting is different because you're choosing to do this. So um, if you uh, have a surgery coming up and you're not allowed to lead, and you're not allowed to eat for 12 hours, you're doing that not because <laughs> you're fasting, but because uh, you're going to have surgery and you have to do that. Now, you might want to regard that as a type of fasting, I suppose, but it doesn't quite measure up to, I think, what Paul would call a fast. But I guess all these examples, Jesus' assumption that we will fast, the fact that the apostles did at the proper time begin fasting, that they clearly taught that this is, exemplified this to the churches, taught this to the churches. The question is, what about you and me then? Can we say that fasting has been a common part of our Christian lives? As common as, say, giving or praying. Now, I suppose most of us wouldn't fast as much as we give or pray, because if, if we were supposed to pray without ceasing, we certainly aren't going to fast without ceasing. We'll die, right? So we're never going to fast like we pray or like we give. The, the point is, is it a regular part of our life? And that is, do we do it in an equal amount? But like prayer, like giving, is it a regular part of our Christian life is the question we need to ask ourselves. Is it, is it seen as an ordinary practice to us? I hope so. But if not, we should all be encouraged to include fasting as an important spiritual discipline in our lives. However, we should be careful about the way we do it. As Jesus teaches us in this passage by comparing wrong fasting with right fasting. And he begins with the former, which brings us to our second main point. That Jesus warns us against hypocritical fasting. I want you to fast but not like those guys, not like those hypocrites over there, right? And we see in the first part of verse 16 here, Jesus describes hypocritical fasting uh, by stressing both its goal and its reward. First, the goal of hypocritical fasting. Matthew 6.16 says, Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. The hypocrites like to go around looking like they were fasting so that other people would notice how spiritual they were. They weren't, they were fasting with the goal of being seen to be fasting by others. As Jesus describes them, they would go around with a sad countenance. You know, like, oh, oh, boy. What? What's wrong? Oh, I'm fasting today. You know, that kind of thing. If you want to imagine the situation, it would be something like that. Boy, yeah, I'm too tired to do that, brother. I'm, I'm fasting today, you know. And they would even disfigure their faces, he says, uh, so that they would appear to be fasting to others. And this is almost comical, and it would be comical if it weren't true, Right? But what does Jesus mean when he says that they would disfigure their faces? Well, he uses a Greek word here for our Greek scholars. Afanizo is the word. It's often defined as follows in the linguistic key to the Greek New Testament. It puts it this way. To render 
invisible or unrecognizable, of one's face to disfigure, that is, with ashes and by leaving the hair and beard unattended, or by coloring the face to look pale as though fasting. So they obviously have Jesus' use of this word in mind in their definition, right? So instead of merely trying to look sad, these hypocrites should have actually been saddened by their own spiritual bankruptcy. And they should have repented of their sinful pride. That's what their fasting should have been about. They should have also have known better because the Old Testament scriptures warned about such insincere fasting just as Jesus did in our text. And one good example of that is from Isaiah 58, verses 3 through 8, where the Lord is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? So the people are saying, we're going on these fasts and God's not appearing to take any notice. He doesn't seem to care that we're fasting, right? Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. So God's responding to them. They're saying, God, why aren't you, why don't you seem to care that we're fasting? Look at the hard work we're putting into this fasting, and you're ignoring it. And his response is, well, here's why. In the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. You're pretending to fast and care about me, but you're not doing the things I've told you to do. You're not living the way I've told you to live. Hypocrisy is what he's pointing out. Indeed, he says, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? What he's saying is you can do all those things and they're meaningless if you don't care one whit about how I've told you to treat other people or how to live as I've taught you to live righteously, right? And then he says, is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked, that you cover him. Do not hide yourself from your own flesh. In other words, they probably had relatives that were poor, and they were hiding so they wouldn't have to help them. Let's avoid that guy. He's going to ask me for money or food, right? That's the kind of thing that was going on. And then they were going and saying, oh, Lord, I'm fasting. <laughs> God's had enough of that, clearly. He says, if you fast like this, like I'm telling you, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. The things that you want from me, simply abstaining from food and inflicting your souls aren't going to get them from me. 
you've got to sincerely love me and do as I say. In other words, they were just hypocrites. Well, they still had this problem in the first century later on when Jesus came. And in the early church, Christians took such passages, and especially Jesus' teaching, so much to heart that they wouldn't even fast on the same days of the week as the Pharisees typically fasted. They, 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 they so much wanted to have nothing to do with that hypocritical fasting that if the Pharisees fasted on certain days, they would pick other days to fast. And they wouldn't try to be seen doing it. In fact, the Didache, which just means the teaching, um, it's a late first century Christian document. It, it says this, but do not let your fast coincide with those of the hypocrites. They fast on Monday and Thursday, so you must fast on Wednesday and Friday. <laughs> the early church then wanted nothing to do with the kind of hypocritical fasting that our Lord Jesus condemned. No doubt also because they knew where such fasting led. Which takes us to Jesus' next point of emphasis here where he talks about the reward of hypocritical fasting. It does have its reward. It's not like the hypocrites who are hypocritically fasting aren't getting something out of it. Because they are. He says in the latter part of verse 16, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. Now, when our Lord Jesus said that they have their reward, he actually didn't use the Greek words that he typically used when he says to have something or to receive something. Instead, he used a word here that he occasionally employed in similar contexts in order to stress a reward that was received in full. In other words, there's no other reward but that one that they're getting. In fact, a Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament and other early Christian literature, it's a mouthful, says that the primary meaning of this word is to receive in full what is due. And Jesus used this particular word to describe the reward that they're getting from their hypocritical fasting. This more nuanced meaning of the word is certainly implied in the context here, but it's actually explicitly uh, reflected in several modern versions. For example, the Legacy Standard Bible says, truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. They're trying to bring out the meaning of this Greek word more fully, no pun intended. The New American Standard does the same thing. The NIV actually says, truly I tell, to, I tell you, they have their reward in full. Well, that's really the emphasis, that emphasis accurately what Jesus is saying here. So the point Jesus was making couldn't be really any clearer, could it? The hypocrite aims at impressing men with his supposed spirituality in order to selfishly pat himself on the back, but in doing so, he receives the only reward he will ever get. He certainly won't get one from God. As John Piper, I think, rightly states, Jesus says in the last part of verse 16, truly I say to you, they have the reward in full. In other words, if that is the reward you aim at in fasting, that is what you will get, and that will be all that you get. In other words, the danger of hypocrisy is that it is so successful. It aims at the praise of men, and it succeeds, but that's all. Well said, 
I think. This is a situation our Lord Jesus would have us avoid because he wants us to have heavenly rewards. <laughs> and this leads us to our third and final point. Jesus admonishes us to heartfelt fasting. And just as with hypocritical fasting, so also with true heartfelt fasting, Jesus stresses both its goal and its reward. First, the goal of true fasting we see in verse 16, in the first part of verse 18, where Jesus says, but you, and there's an emphatic you there, but you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place. My secret place there, no one can see where the Father is. Right? And so that's what he means by that. The goal of true fasting clearly is to fellowship with God and to be concerned with what he thinks, first of all, rather than what other people may think. Again, I think John Piper is quite insightful when he writes this, quoting him now, if someone finds out you are fasting, you haven't sinned. He's trying to apply this. Does this mean if, if we want to do it so as not to be seen, and our Father in secret will see, it, see us, does this mean if anybody ever sees us then fasting, that we've sinned? That's an obvious question to ask, and I'm glad he asked it, and he gives a good answer. If someone finds out you're fasting, you haven't sinned. The value of your fast is not destroyed if someone notices that you have skipped lunch. It is possible to fast with other people, and we saw that amongst the apostles, for example. But he gives an example from his own ministry. For example, our staff fasting together on a planning retreat to seek the Lord. It is possible to fast like that and not to fast to be seen by men. And here's an important distinction he makes. Being seen fasting and fasting to be seen are not the same. Being seen fasting is a mere external event. Fasting to be seen is a self-exalting motive of the heart. He understands correctly what Jesus was getting at here, doesn't he? Jesus would have no problem with the apostles fasting together and therefore seeing each other fast. The point was they weren't fasting in order to be seen. They were sincerely fasting together to honor the Lord, to come closer to him and to hear from him. This is why Jesus um, says that his disciples should go about their day of fasting just like they would go about every other day by beginning their day by washing their face, right? But he interestingly also says that they should anoint their heads, which most likely refers to an extra effort to look happy. So just like the hypocrites are making an extra effort to be seen, to be fasting and looking downcast or whatever, bedraggled and so forth, he's saying if you're going to make an extra effort, make it an extra effort to look like you're not fasting. Like, not only is this an ordinary day, but an even happier day than usual, right? Um, as New Testament scholar Donald A. Hagner has pointed out, in view here is a special instance of grooming and personal enjoyment, this idea of anointing, a sign of happiness that was forbidden on fast days. It was forbidden by the Pharisees on fast days because that's work to them. Jesus thus exhorts even an extra measure of care to one's appearance 
so that it could not get the slightest hint that one was fasting. So the goal of true fasting is to be faithful to our Heavenly Father, desirous of pleasing Him rather than men, knowing that He looks not merely on outward appearance, but upon the heart. God, we don't have to look like we're fasting for God to know it. He sees. Because He sees all. Uh, That was a lesson the prophet Samuel learned when he thought David's older brother Eliab looked more like a king. Actually, Eliab looked too much like Saul, (laughs) who was a tall, handsome guy, apparently, and David was the short, not-so-handsome guy. Um, In 1 Samuel 16, 7, we read this, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him, speaking of Eliab. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And that is at the heart of Jesus' point here in our text. God sees what's in our heart. And that's where true fasting takes place. It's a matter of the heart. And this was a lesson that the hypocritical scribes and Pharisees had clearly forgotten. But one which we should never forget. When we see, fast to be seen by God rather than men, he sees what men cannot see. He sees what's in our hearts, and he responds accordingly, which takes us to our Lord's next point of emphasis with regard to sincere fasting, and that is the reward, the reward of true fasting, because there is a reward. He says in the latter part of verse 18, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Now, what reward does Jesus have in mind? Is it a reward in this life? I suppose that's possible. Uh, Certainly, we will find it very rewarding when we see God's name being hallowed and his kingdom being advanced through our prayer and our fasting. That will be a reward in itself, right? But I think the focus here in the context is on the future, on heavenly rewards. We'll be rewarded openly then, For example, recall what Jesus said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, way back in chapter 5, verse 12, where he said, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad when we're persecuted, is in the context. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And notice what Jesus says immediately following his teaching here on fasting, having just talked about us receiving our reward openly, he goes on to say, beginning in verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. It's not an earthly reward we're looking for then. Where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. As we fast, then, we should should remember that we're seeking a heavenly treasure. And that will help us not to be motivated by wanting the praise of men. In fact, we should perhaps see fasting as one important way that we can remind ourselves that as Christians, as Paul says in Colossians 3.2, we are to set our minds on things above and not on things in the earth. 
If I may quote John Piper once more in, in closing, I've obviously found him helpful in thinking through these things. I think you will agree that he puts his finger on an important issue raised by this text. Here's what he says. What Jesus does here is test the reality of God in our lives. Oh, how easy it is to do religious things if other people are watching. Preaching, praying, attending church, reading the Bible, acts of kindness and charity, etc. The reason for this is not only the commendation we might get, but more subtly the sense that the real effectiveness of our spiritual acts is on the horizontal axis among people. Not the vertical axis with God. If the kids see me pray at meals, it will do them good. So there's times we want to be seen praying. We want people to see us, our kids, and we want them to see us pray. We want to model that for them. Peter says pastors are to be examples to the flock. Surely they wanted to be known to be praying and fasting if they're going to be examples to the flock, right? And this is what he's assuming here. Other ways in which we can be seen which aren't bad, but can become bad all too easily. He writes, if my roommate sees me, or uh, if the kids see me pray at meals, it will do them good. If the staff sees me fast, they might be inspired to fast. If my roommate sees me read my Bible, he may be inspired to read his. In other words, we feel the value of our devotion is the horizontal effect it has on others as they see us. Now, that's not all bad, he writes, and he's correct in saying that. But the danger is that all of our life starts to be justified and understood simply on the horizontal level or for the effects that can have because others see it happening. And so God can become a secondary person in the living of our lives. We think that he is important because all these things are the kinds of things he wants us to do. But he himself is falling out of the picture as the focus of it all. Fasting helps us to stop that cycle if we start to fall into it. It's easy for, as a pastor, as one of the elders of this church, for example, to start to think more on the example I'm supposed to be to other people than on the fact that I owe God my highest devotion. I can start to think about them more than him. We, I can think about my wife more than God, which is why Paul said about fasting. For married couples, it can be important sometimes to fast, abstain and fast from marital relations. Because fasting is about reminding ourselves God is most important. He's more important than anything, than other people, than even my daily bread. He's more important than anything. And I think John Piper was very helpful in putting himself on what can be a sincere and good motivation to be a good example to others so that they might better serve the Lord and love him and forget him while we're doing it. It's a very subtle kind of idolatry, isn't it? But as John Calvin once wrote, our, our hearts are idol factories. We just do this. <laughs> and so God wants us to have built into our lives ways of battling that. And fasting is one of them. It's one of them. Prayer is one of them, for sure. Praying like Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. But fasting is 
up there as one of the good things we can do. And that's the kind of thing Jesus wants us to avoid when we give, when we pray, when we fast. He, he wants us to avoid making it just about other people, as important as that is, because we're supposed to love others. But we're supposed to love God first. And we can fall into loving them instead of him if we're not careful. We're loving them more without meaning to if we're not careful. And Jesus wants to stop that from happening. He never wants us to lose sight of God as the center of our lives when we get so busy living before and with other people. He never wants us to forget that hypocrisy always begins with a selfish desire to be thought well of by others, with a tendency to crowd God out of the very things we're trying to do for him. I hope today that we'll all leave here with a renewed desire that he be first in all that we do. And I hope we will be encouraged to think of fasting as one way of doing that. And if we haven't thought of it as a regular part of our Christian lives, or we used to and we don't anymore, maybe we need to revive this as a practice in our lives for all the right reasons and in the right ways. Because our Lord Jesus wants this for us. It's for our good. There are rewards that come with it that he wants us to have, even. And that's because he loves us so much. What a gracious Savior we have. So he says, don't make the mistake of thinking just because hypocrites can distort a thing, that the thing itself is bad when it isn't. Restore the goodness of it. Reform. Do better. Let's pray. Holy Father, I do thank you for this text and for the conviction it's come to me. I haven't fasted as much these days as I used to. Um, I kind of, I, I confess that I've lost sight of it too much. Myself. And uh, I could make excuses about my health and other things, but really it's just that I got distracted. And I missed out on something good. I didn't necessarily sin by not fasting, but I was praying, I was reading your word, I was seeking you. But I did miss out on something good that you wanted me to have. I didn't, I didn't see it as the good thing enough that I should have. And that's something to repent of, surely. And maybe that is what others here have felt. Maybe they're in the same boat I was in. And they just needed the same reminder I needed today. Thank you for it. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your reminders that there are ways in which we can draw closer to you and that you will reward us for even though we don't deserve it. Such a gracious God you are. So please forgive us for any failure in this regard, I pray, and help us do better. I ask these things in the name of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Thank you once again for your kind attention.